KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. The Pfizer COVID vaccine begins its rollout in San Diego. I think this totally expected that there will be another shipment of Pfizer coming in the next several weeks. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. How are hospitals directing their resources as intensive care capacity dwindles? We manage on literally sometimes an hourly basis uh, the human resource needs that we have, which are really the most stretched of all. Does COVID care cost the same for everybody? We'll begin tracking the bills. And what neuroscientists are learning about COVID's effect on the brain. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The Pfizer COVID vaccine is in San Diego. The first shipments have arrived and the first people vaccinated will be healthcare workers. That's the news from county officials after the vaccine received formal emergency authorization late on Friday. The first vaccinations have already taken place today, mainly in medical centers on the East Coast. But the good news about the vaccine is slightly dampened by its very limited supply. San Diego's expected 28,000 doses are only enough for about 70% of hospital workers in the county and only for the first dose. Joining me is San Diego Dr. Rodney Hood, president and founder of the Multicultural Health Foundation and a member of California's COVID-19 Scientific Safety Review Workgroup. Dr. Hood, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Where are the shipments of the COVID vaccine being stored in San Diego? Well, uh, from my understanding, there are three places uh, at uh, Children's Rady Hospital, University Hospital, and at the county. And each of those facilities have the very cold minus 97 degrees Fahrenheit apparatus that can keep this vaccine uh, the way stabilized the way it needs to be? Yeah, so uh, they, uh, that's why they're there. They all have the uh, capacity to uh, store it. I, I think it's minus uh, 70 degrees or more. And uh, those are the uh, three places that have the capacity. And then the uh, distribution will go from there. Do you know when vaccinations will begin here in San Diego? You know, um, I honestly uh, do not. I think uh, that is now being uh, determined. I think uh, each uh, hospital 
where the vaccines would be uh, distributed, uh, kind of uh, uh, developing their own uh, plan. But when the first vaccine will be given, um, uh, I can't tell you, but I believe since it just uh, came uh, today, within the next day or so. Now, the state review panel approved the vaccine after the FDA approval this weekend. What were those state discussions like? Well, um, they were quite uh, uh, interesting. They were uh, very intense, very thorough. What we did was uh, review the uh, FDA data that Pfizer uh, presented to the uh, FDA. Uh, It was uh, quite uh, extensive, not only talking about safety and efficacy, but uh, folks should know the uh, Pfizer study was over 44,000 individuals. Most of them were in the United States, but there were other countries involved, including Turkey, Germany, South Africa, and Brazil and Argentina. It had a diverse ethnic uh, background, but I think the most impressive thing (laughs) was that the effectiveness of 94-95% was seen uh, consistent across all of the uh, subgroups, all of the ethnic racial subgroups, as well as uh, age and gender. And why is the state recommending that the full 28,000 doses that are going to be given here in San Diego be given as a first dose instead of saving some of the vaccine for the needed booster shot? Well, I I think this totally expected that there will be another uh, shipment uh, promised of uh, Pfizer coming in the next uh, several weeks. And so the... um, uh, uh, plan is is that when that uh, second group comes, that uh, they will then get their uh, second dose. Now, hospitals in San Diego say they will not require their medical staff to get the vaccine. Do you agree with that decision? Well, um, I, it's it's kind of hard to uh, force folks to get uh, vaccines. Answer is a yes. At this point, I don't think you should force anybody. I think there's a lot of education that needs to uh, take place. I think that education has already taken place. I can tell you the surveys that I've seen over the past several months, including hospital staffs, are are showing uh, more acceptance. So uh, several months ago, um, the the, uh, surveys are now showing in the recent uh, surveys more and more uh, beginning uh, to be acceptance of of the uh, vaccine. Uh, If there is a silver lining into the uh, shortage, those that are not willing to take it at this time, many of them are not saying they won't take it, they're just not willing to take it at this time. So as more and more vaccine rolls out and is available, hopefully there'll be enough vaccine for those that have delayed uh, taking it. So in essence, because we only have 28,000, the the ones who want to get it uh, will get it. And then those that change their mind later as the vaccine rolls out, we'll be able to get it then. I believe as we move forward, more and more people will be acceptance of the vaccine once when they hear how safe it is and get more information. There are some concerns that the strong reactions to the vaccine reported by some participants in the clinical trials will put off people from going in for the second dose. Do you think that may be a problem? Well, I think it's a potential problem. However, I think that's why it's important to kind of educate folks that, um, yes, for this vaccine, we call it uh, reactogenicity, meaning when you get the shot, uh, there are uh, local reactions 
to the shot that um, we have seen a little bit more other vaccines. So in essence, with the flu, uh, there's usually very little reactogenicity. However, with this one, uh, what you see is local reaction, redness, little pain, and uh, many times the reaction that people feel are a little bit more after the second dose. So I think educating folks about that, uh, it should be, it's really a positive thing. It's really uh, letting us know that your body immune system is uh, responding. So it is not an unexpected uh, event. It's not an unexpected side, side effect. But I think if you educate folks about it, uh, there'll be less hesitancy. We have seen this with other uh, vaccines. So uh, for instance, with the um, uh, shingles vaccine, that's a, a two-dose uh, vaccine. Uh, there's a little bit more reactivity uh, to that vaccine than the uh, flu vaccine. So uh, this should not be uh, deter folks from uh, getting it. And I think with education, um, that, uh, uh, that hopefully won't be a great problem from preventing them from getting it. I've been speaking with San Diego Dr. Rodney Hood. And Dr. Hood, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Thank you. COVID-19 cases are continuing to climb in San Diego County, and with that comes an increase in hospitalizations for the disease. But state metrics show ICU availability is shrinking. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento asked the leader of Sharp Healthcare how they're balancing resources amid demand. She spoke with Sharp's chief operating officer, Brett McLean. There's a lot of concern if there will be enough resources to go around. So just tell me what it's like managing resources in your facilities right now. Without the incredible analytic support that we have, in, in particular at Sharp, uh, we would not have been able to uh, weather this uh, as good as we have. We manage on literally sometimes an hourly basis the human resource needs that we have, which are really the most stretched of all. Uh, we manage the bed capacity and the type of beds, uh, whether those are typical med surge uh, hospital beds or ICUs, uh, et cetera. We manage the uh, incoming volume that will normally come through our emergency rooms and our trauma rooms every single uh, day. And we manage the supplies. Uh, so it is uh, uh, really a throughput work, really an engineering feat. Uh, and we just have uh, super talented folks uh, managing this on a daily basis. Several reporters were asking the county um, during their news brief you know, how will decisions be made when we have more need than we have staff space equipment? So who is the authority on making those decisions? Is it you? Does it come down to you? Right now, uh, the direction that's coming down from the state is that we're not under that order to stop all uh, non-COVID cases, right? So every health system comes together on their own and makes decisions on the specifics. Uh, we at Sharp, are lucky enough to have you know multiple sites and uh, multiple different places that we can provide different level, levels of care. So we're making decisions on a daily basis to move patients from one hospital to another, if there's room and space, in order to manage our COVID population uh, as well as our non-COVID population. So that is something that we uh, that we do on a daily basis, and I'm absolutely involved in that. We we actually have a small team that meets twice a day. 
clinical leadership at each of our facilities uh, every morning at 7.30 and every afternoon at 5 to talk about what's going on right now. What can we do within the system? What do we need to do to find more resources uh, uh, that one place might have versus another? Uh, and then we make decisions uh, moving forward for the next day or the next week. You are, though, just uh, many facilities, but just one healthcare system in San Diego. Um, and so responding to the need does go beyond sharp. How are decisions on resource allocation at other facilities? their system, just like you described, affecting SHARP? Yeah. Uh, while SHARP is the leading uh, provider uh, in San Diego, there are other uh, very substantial uh, systems as well. We actually communicate every single day, seven days a week together on what our uh, volumes are, what our uh, what we found in terms of testing, what those rates are. We take a look at, boy, is there something happening with both us and scripts maybe in the South Bay at Chula Vista? We look at that. We communicate that back and forth. That partnership has really helped us uh, to identify where some peaks and valleys may be coming, but it also allows us where, where possible to move patients within facilities as well. It's uh, uh, not a common every single day thing, but it does happen. Uh, and we work together based on you know what those, uh, what those volumes are telling us that we need to do. So that process has been fantastic. Have you had any trouble with other facilities taking patients when requested for a transfer? Now, I, I would say uh, to date, uh, the issues around any type of difficulty in transferring has really not been a space issue. The significant issue is staffing. Uh, and we're all dealing with the same issues of uh, the same uh, uh, pools of staff uh, that are exhausted, that uh, are working uh, like I have just never seen anybody work before. It's just amazing uh, to spend time uh, at the front lines and just watch and observe what's happening. Uh, we've got you know dwindling pools of traveler nurses because the whole country's uh, going through the same issue, right? So there's uh, certainly a lot of uh, competitiveness, if you will, and, and different rates and all of that. So uh, that is uh, pulling uh, some staff uh, into other areas, but it really is around uh, staffing. That's, that's the issue. So if we have the difficulty maybe accepting a patient that needs a transfer, it's not uh, to date. It's not because of space. It's because of not having the appropriate right kind of staffing. And maybe we need another five, six hours to fix that to be able to, to move on. And I would say that's the case for everybody. Is there risk to the patient with that delay? Well, you know, the patient is still typically in uh, another, you know, care facility. Uh, and we have, you know, let's say, uh, you know, uh, in our emergency room, we may have an ICU patient that's in there uh, that's been deemed to be, when we find a bed, will be an ICU patient. But we still have, you know, significant resources in the, in the emergency room from staffing and the doctors uh, and uh, all of that to care for that patient and in a very similar way that they would be cared for on the, on the ICU. But it's gonna delay things. It's going to delay, you know, other patients that are coming in, they'll have to wait longer. It will, you know, the system will just get slower and slower, you know, because of that. But it, it is the thing that keeps me up right now is uh, capacity and uh, the ability to have enough staff to care uh, for these patients, which is why uh, we are just in this window right now of the ability to bend this curve down uh, again. I, I really feel that we have, uh, you know, at least probably three tough months ahead of us 
but we can make those three months better by right now, today, changing our behaviors, changing the way in which we uh, spend time with each other and, uh, you know, uh, wear a darn mask. But we have heard um, from projections presented at a county board meeting that by Christmas, we will be full. Is that the impression you're operating under as well? Yeah, I am uh, operating under both uh, that as a major fear uh, that it's going to get worse. And I'm also operating under uh, the hope that uh, we bend that curve together and do the things that we need to do to uh, make these next uh, couple months uh, as uh, good as they can be. So I'm hopeful, uh, but we have to prepare for the worst. And so that's uh, that's the work that we do every day. What is the worst? I think the worst is that, you know, hospitals are full. Uh, and when you say that, again, I mean that from both a space as well as a uh, resource or a staffing perspective, that we are uh, having to enact some of our uh, federal uh, help, if you will, for some of the, you know, uh, other sites, uh, the mobile sites, tents, uh, things like that, uh, that we will have more and more delayed care, meaning people won't go to the hospital when they have that first uh, twinge of chest pain, right? Uh, that's super dangerous. That is not uh, that is not what we need to be doing. But that's on my list of things uh, of the worst is that those, you know, that stuff still happens. People still have heart attacks. They still get in car accidents. They still have strokes. Uh, and we need to care uh, for those patients as we do now. So that that's the picture I hope we don't see. That was KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento speaking with Sharp COO Brett McLean. I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. San Diego researchers think plants may offer a significant way to draw down excess carbon in the air. That carbon is feeding a cycle that's warming the planet's climate. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says there's a lot riding on the local research. Greenhouse manager McKenna Hopwood opens a door to what she jokingly calls the meat locker. Okay, there we go. Bags of drying plants, both stalks and roots, hang from the ceiling like slabs of meat in a cooler. But of course, they're plants. So um, these have all been root washed and then processed, and then they've been drying for about a week. Um, Depending on the crop, we'll dry them for about a week to two weeks, and then we'll throw them in the plant drying oven for a day or two, and then we'll do our biomass weights. This is the final stop for plants raised in the salt greenhouse. 
Hopwood is constantly growing several different plant species here. Um, some plants don't really like to be watered from the top and these ones are really sensitive so if they have soil that gets um, tossed into the middle of the plant they won't produce their flower. Some of these plants grow fast, seed to harvest in a few months. Others are crop plants like corn, soybeans and wheat. Add in sorghum, rice and canola and that's most of the popular food crops grown in the world. Total plant acreage is about the size of India. One of the biggest challenges we think and the biggest threat um, for um, humanity is the climate crisis. Wolfgang Busch is looking for ways to make these widely used plants a lot better at moving carbon from the air and storing it deeper in the ground. He's using millions of dollars in grants to develop longer and deeper root systems. And they are the key to storing carbon that the burning of fossil fuels spews into the air. And we're trying to find um, um, mechanisms, genetic recipes, if you want, so to actually make better plants or make plants better in storing larger amounts of carbon underground for longer in the soil. Bush hopes to find the right combination of gene manipulation and breeding and the transfer of desirable traits from other plants to make those six crops better at carbon sequestration. Bush says they represent a short-term answer to a long-term problem. And there are currently only uh, actually no really scalable methods to draw down carbon dioxide except from plants. So if you think about this in the long run, this technology will enable a carbon drawdown um, that is really urgently needed to get back to uh, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere that are safe for us. But the clock is ticking. The planet's average temperature continues to climb at dramatic rates. Bush says it'll still be about five years before he's likely to develop the plants that he's confident will help. It could be 15 years before enough of those plants are planted to make a difference. I think we can, but we're really right on the edge. Salk researcher Joanne Corey says temperatures are rising because people push more carbon dioxide into the air than what the planet can handle. She understands the urgency, but remains hopeful. So you don't have to fix everything in the planet. You only have to get those 18 gigatons that the Earth can't deal with. That's a small part of what plants push around on a regular seasonal basis, right? They're pushing around more like 800 gigatons. Corey thinks plants can pull about four gigatons of that extra carbon out of the air and put it into the soil. Building out more renewable energy and making cars electric could help too, but those transitions will take time. Corey thinks developing plants that can move the carbon out of the plant sugars and into non-biodegradable polymers buried deep in roots could buy some time until other solutions come along. So I'll take some wheat right here. It's been growing a little long. McKenna Hopwood is spending that time in search of a scalable solution in the salt greenhouse. And then you just take this guy, transplant it in. But success here and in the lab will have to be duplicated on a global scale. Researchers are confident the science will help them improve the plants, but they don't share that optimism about governments and farmers who will have to implement the solution before the climate gets too warm. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Joining me is Ram Ramanathan, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric and Climate Sciences at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and renowned climate researcher. He's led efforts to mitigate climate change with the United Nations, the National Academy of Sciences, the State of California, 
and with the Vatican. And welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. The researchers who are developing these plants to remove more carbon from the atmosphere think it would take at least 15 years for plants like this to have a significant impact. Won't we have seen major damage from climate change by then? Quite a bit. Uh, In fact, uh, teaming up with some colleagues, I published a study two years ago saying that we are going to cross the next dangerous threshold of warming in about 10 years from now, by 2030. And uh, I am personally, if I'm spending sleepless nights, it's on this point. Uh, To me, it looks like we're gonna take another three to five years to recover from this uh, COVID crisis. And by then, the new crisis would start in terms of climate change, the warming of, another dangerous threshold, which is degree and a half. As of 2015, the planet has already warmed by a degree. And by the time it goes to one and a half, that's the planet we have not seen in the last 125,000 years. So we are going to be crossing such unprecedented thresholds every 10 to 15 years from now onwards, unless we bend that warming curve. And to bend the warming curve, you have to bend the emissions curve. Since we have delayed uh, so much, bending the emissions curve by itself is not enough. Uh, We have put so much pollution, close to a trillion tons of pollution is up in the air we got to suck that out of the air. This making the plants, uh, roots uh, go fatter and longer to take the carbon is one of many, many, many ways we need. So is there a point of no return where we can no longer influence the trajectory of climate change? Uh, Maureen, unfortunately and sadly, yes. Uh, As I see it, there is not a single point of no return. Uh, It's going to depend on whom. In about 10 years from now, if we have not bent that warming curve, I expect uh, at least 3 billion people, they're what I call on bottom 3 billion, not for any pejorative reason, they're on the bottom of the energy ladder. They have no access to any uh, clean energy, even for basic things. And with the degree and a half warming, that may have a huge disruption for them in their ability to make a living, in their ability to maintain just their basic living standards. That's 10 years from now. And then let's go to the middle uh, 3 billion. And they're the ones living in cities, maintaining all basic services. For them, I think uh, where they are going to be severely, severely impacted irreversibly, it'll be another 20 to 25 years from now when the warming reaches about two degrees. That would be catastrophic for them. And then is the wealthiest one billion. I am part of this and many of us are. And 
for us, the point of no return will come beyond 2050, when the warming could go beyond two, three degrees. By the time you go to three degrees warming, that's a planet we have not seen in the last 25, 30 million years. We don't even know what's waiting for us. The next 10 years, we can reverse all this dystopian, nightmarish scenarios. It's in our power. We can still do it. We are currently moving away from an administration in Washington that basically denied human-caused climate change to one where preventing further climate damage is a very high priority. What are you expecting to see from the new Biden administration? I, I think the first thing we need to do is uh, join the global community, particularly the Paris Agreement. And you ask, why, why do we need all this? Why can't we just cut our emissions? And my answer is that uh, these pollutants stay, once you dump them into the air, they stay for decades to centuries. So pollution anywhere is global warming everywhere. Okay, so we got to cut these emissions worldwide. And for that, I personally feel it requires American leadership, American technology, and uh, the American ingenuity to solve problems. So we need to cut our own emissions down. And in that regard, I like very much the plan the uh, president-elect has already uh, announced. And what I would like to see an aggressive global leadership so that we share our technologies, we share our knowledge, so every country, like India, Africa, China, they can bring their emissions down. I have been speaking with Ram Ramanathan, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric and Climate Sciences at Scripps. And I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Maureen. For the last nine months, officials have assured us testing and treatment for COVID-19 is affordable, but is that true? Well, a project between iNews sources Jill Castellano and KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento hopes to answer that question, and both of them join us now. Taryn, Jill, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, Taryn, I'll start with you. What prompted this project? Yeah, the, the New York Times has done some excellent work on surprise medical bills and found that you know some patients were receiving unexpected charges not covered by insurance. Even a resident in a nursing facility told the Times that they had a COVID fee to cover personal protective equipment. Another COVID patient saw a similar PPE charge on a bill for an ambulance ride. The Time referred to this as the COVID charge. They also reported on surprise fees for, for out-of-network services uh, that the patient wasn't aware they were receiving. So we're looking to see if any of this is happening in San Diego County. And Jill, you know, aside from looking at San Diego County, what do you hope to find out from all this? Well, we know medical bills can be really expensive. There are cases where patients are being charged a lot of money for COVID testing or treatment, and sometimes they had no idea it was going to cost that much. We also know some providers are charging more than others for the same services, which shows a problem with equity in our healthcare system. So we're trying to understand why these situations are happening and prevent residents from facing the same problems in the future. And Taryn, what's the reason some medical bills are so expensive despite government assurances uh, that they won't be? 
Right. There are there are laws. Um, insurance companies are required to pay the full cost of COVID-19 testing with, without charging a patient anything. And if a patient receives care at an out-of-network facility, they're not supposed to face higher charges for that. But if they go to a facility in their network and a doctor there happens to be out of their network, then that could cost more. So there are exceptions to treatment and testing, and, and that's what we're looking into. We're trying to learn from our audience when these happen and then dig into why it's happening. And Jill, you all mentioned in your call out that some high medical bills related to COVID-19 are just unavoidable. Can you tell me about some of those situations? Absolutely. One of the most common scenarios is ambulances, either on the ground transport or when it gets really expensive is helicopter rides. If you're unconscious, it might be the case that you need to be airlifted to the hospital and you have no control over that situation. You certainly don't have to have control over who operates that helicopter, who owns that helicopter, what agreement that owner has with your insurance company or with the hospital you're being flown to. So because of all those factors, there are cases we've seen where people are being charged tens of thousands of dollars for these helicopter rides. There was one recent study that found as many as 71% of ambulance rides could result in surprise out-of-network bills. Wow. So medical transport is one thing. Taryn, talk to me about some of the hidden fees in these medical bills that you're that you're hearing about. Right. So the Times has reported, you know, that some nursing homes and dentists are charging customers extra fees with, without letting them know beforehand to maybe make up the money that they're spending to acquire that personal protective equipment for their workers. And the Times called these COVID fees and they could be around twenty five or fifty dollars. And so then, Jill, tell me about these medical offices and facilities. Can they realistically offer COVID testing and treatment at an affordable price? And and are they given resources to do so from the government? Yeah, that really gets to the heart of this project. We know here in San Diego, county and state testing sites are fully covering the costs of testing and charging zero dollars. I've gone to these sites and paid zero dollars. We've started to have people write into our call out and say they haven't paid any money for going to these county and state sites. But we also know there are other sites out there and that we need those other sites that are not county or state run to meet the need in San Diego County. And we've started receiving responses from people saying they've paid as much as $160 for testing at some of those private sites. So the question is, are those private providers receiving enough financial support from the government to make testing and treatment affordable? And if they are, why are they charging so much? Basically, we want to know, could COVID healthcare be less expensive than it is right now? And Taryn, we keep mentioning this call out. What do you need for people listening to this to do? Well, they can help us by by telling us, you know, what have you been charged for COVID-19 testing or treatment? And then spreading the word um, about this project. Uh, and to answer the questions about what you've been charged, you can go to kpbs.org slash COVID cost. Uh, and because this is an iNewsource KPBS partnership, you can also email COVID at iNewsource.org. Also, KPBS and iNewsource are on Twitter. Jill and I are on Twitter. So you can tweet us there. And we've, we've both push, been um, pushing out the link that'll take you back to how you can answer these questions. I've been speaking with Taryn Mento, KPBS health reporter, and Jill Castellano, a reporter with iNewsource. Thank you, both of you. Thank you. Thanks. 
The California Restaurant Association says up to one-third of the state's eateries might not survive the pandemic. That number could be significantly higher in the Bay Area and Los Angeles County, where immigrants who are particularly vulnerable to changes in the economy make up a larger share of restaurant owners. KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb spoke with restaurateurs in the San Gabriel Valley just east of L.A. It's home to a vibrant Chinese-American food scene. It's lunchtime at NBC Seafood Restaurant in Monterey Park. I'm sitting with Genevieve Ko on the last day of outdoor dining in Los Angeles. She's a recipe creator and also editor for the New York Times cooking section, and she grew up in this part of East LA County. On the menu, a Cantonese staple she grew up eating, dim sum. So this is a steamed rice roll with uh, roasted pork with cha siu. So dig in. Now, enjoying dim sum comes with the type of dining experience tailored for a large banquet hall. You know the place, red carpeting, no frills, white tablecloth, round tables that sit 12. Oh yeah, tea kettles that are always full. But with outdoor dining now on hold in LA and in other parts of California, Co says there's a real risk places like this one just won't make it. Yeah, a lot of these other restaurants actually closed even before COVID. And so this was one of the last few that are remaining. Other restaurants that had been doing relatively well with outdoor dining are beginning to struggle. That includes Popping Yoke in nearby Alhambra. All right, so that's going to come out to 9.10 and your order's going to be ready in about 15 minutes. It's a brunch spot owned by Jason Tsai. Popping Yoke is designed for dining, it's not designed for to go. So it wasn't really work because nobody coming over here to get an egg benedict to go. I mean, they did, but not a lot of people, you know? Nobody coming over here say, I want to grab a French toast to go, you know, or a mimosa to go. They want a dining. Sai says he's staying open for now, but with eight grand in rent and utilities, another 20 for his waitstaff and his chef, he just doesn't know how long he can last. And it's a similar story down the road at Jiangnan Spring in Alhambra. Frances Chang says she's hoping news of a vaccine will bolster business at her restaurant. This isn't going to end until there's a vaccine, um, just because it's going to be open, close, open, close. And so the short term is, you know, everyone is getting used to having to order takeout, either online, on the phone. There is some financial help on the way. Governor Gavin Newsom says he's extending the tax deadline for restaurants by three months. And L.A. is offering upwards of $30,000 for payroll and other business expenses. For now, for these restaurant owners, it's all about adapting, gritting your teeth, and a little luck. That was KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb reporting from the San Gabriel Valley. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships 
or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Scientists have only been studying COVID-19 for less than a year, which is why information about it continues to change and evolve. KPBS reporter Beth Agamondo has always been fascinated by the brain. She asked UC San Diego Health neurointensivist Dr. Navaz Karanjia about how COVID can affect the brain. So I'm someone who's always been fascinated by how the brain works, and I tend to gravitate to pop culture that explores themes involving loss of identity and mind control, and yes, the zombie apocalypse. So this also means that I love picking the brains of neuroscientists like Navaz Karanjia of UC San Diego Health. Now, you specialize in something called neurocritical care. So explain what that means. I'm an ICU doctor that cares for patients with severe brain and spinal cord injuries like big strokes, brain hemorrhages, brain infections, uh, trauma, tumors. So I've done four years of specialty training in neurology and another two subspecializing in neurocritical care. And now at UCSD, I lead a dedicated team of neurosurgeons, stroke doctors, and nurses in our neuro ICUs to help our patients recover. So what are the ways that COVID can attack the brain and how does it affect the brain and nerves? The thing that's tragic and fascinating about COVID is it can affect the brain and nerves in so many different ways. For example, the damage it causes to blood vessels can lead to strokes and brain hemorrhages in up to 6% of hospitalized patients. Low oxygen levels caused by the lung and heart injury can damage the brain and the inflammation itself from the infection can affect the brain and the nerves causing confusion and delirium in the majority of patients with severe COVID. It can also directly infect the nervous system. In uh, mild cases, it can cause loss of taste or smell, or in severe cases, it can cause meningitis. We've also seen it cause an autoimmune reaction where the body's antibodies to the virus accidentally attack the brain and nerves, and that can cause life-threatening issues like brain swelling and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And finally, there are psychiatric symptoms that are being reported. We're seeing people with hallucinations, even psychosis, uh, even after mild COVID disease, um, which could be from brain involvement. And then there's the anxiety, depression, and PTSD due to the psychological trauma of being hospitalized with a frightening disease. Is this disease seeming to do something that's new and that's never been seen before? Or is it just affecting the body in ways that are causing these neurological problems? So it's not that these things have never been seen before. We've seen them to very small degrees in uh, in other viral infections. But I think what's different about COVID is you've got no immunity in most people. And so the effects are uh, are proving to be very severe and much more common um, in the nervous system than we're used to seeing in other viruses because most people have some immunity to those viruses. One of the unique things about COVID though is that effect on the blood vessel lining that causes clots everywhere in the body. This is not something we've seen uh, from common viruses before and that's why the effects of COVID seem to be uh, more devastating and causing more widespread organ damage than we're used to seeing with other viruses. 
So can you talk about some of the specific neurological problems that COVID can cause, some specific examples of things you've seen or that have been documented? The neurological problems related to COVID can range from mild, like headache or loss of taste and smell, which are very common in symptomatic patients, to more concerning things like difficulty concentrating or thinking, which people are calling brain fog, uh, to confusion and delirium. And then there are the life-threatening complications that we've seen, uh, strokes from those blood clots I talked about, brain swelling, seizures, coma from infection and inflammation of the brain, uh, paralysis from autoimmune attacks on the nerves. Uh, what I'm seeing most commonly is delirium in the very sick COVID patients, and we've seen a number of strokes as well, both of which can have permanent consequences. And although they happen more frequently, the more severe the patient's COVID symptoms, it's important to note that these neuroemergencies can even happen to patients with mild respiratory symptoms. We've seen some young patients with minimally symptomatic COVID with no stroke risk factors come in with devastating large strokes. So are the neurological complications coming mostly from or by COVID causing strokes and and you know, depriving the brain of oxygen, or does the virus actually just directly attack brain cells? So the problem with this virus is it can do both. So there are plenty of reports of meningitis and uh, encephalitis or inflammation of the brain from the virus infecting the brain. Um, we also know that even in minimally symptomatic patients, uh, when they uh, have an MRI, they can demonstrate evidence of inflammation of the brain, even if they don't have neurologic symptoms. So the exact number of patients that's, uh, that are having um, neuroinvasion is unclear, but because an early symptom of COVID is commonly the loss of smell and taste, which uh, is carried by the nerve from the nose that goes directly to the brain, the olfactory nerve, we are concerned that direct invasion of the neurosystem is happening in a much larger percentage of patients than uh, we would normally expect with, with, a, with a virus like this. The stroke complications are happening in about 6%, um, depending on the study that you read, of hospitalized COVID patients. And they happen more frequently the more severe the COVID is. So uh, those um, complications, although less frequent, are, uh, are, are pretty devastating. So what might be the dangers of these neurological complications from COVID as we kind of move forward? For the more severe neural complications of COVID, like stroke or Guillain-Barre, the risk of death or permanent disability is very real. For example, with stroke, mortality is around 20% and permanent disability um, happens to about 50% of stroke survivors. And even if you don't have visible damage to the brain from COVID, just being in the ICU and being delirious puts you at high risk for what's called post-intensive care syndrome or PICS, which can lead to persistent fatigue, cognitive problems similar to Alzheimer's, and psychiatric problems like PTSD for years following discharge from the ICU. 
So moving forward, if we can all try to be patient and continue to wear our masks and social distance so we can slow the pace of infections, it will give us time to do the research, find out what really works, and help make sure there's an ICU bed for you or your family if you need it. This, I think, is a, is a team sport, one of my colleagues said. Team human against team virus. And the game is changing as we go on. But it's like that saying, united we stand, divided we fall. If we all work together, we can beat this thing. That was Dr. Navaz Karanjia speaking with Beth Accomando. She shared more information about COVID and the brain that you can hear in Beth's full interview on our website. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.